You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. We're joined today by a dear friend, Larry Gostin. Professor Gostin heads the O'Neill Center at Georgetown University Law School and is a leading authority, familiar to many in our audience, I'm sure, on issues pertaining to human rights and ethics in global health. And that is with respect to the United States as well as beyond. And today we're having the return also of a close friend and partner in this enterprise, Andrew Schwartz. And we're delighted to have him back with us now. So we're fully operational again. Larry, let's start. You know, we wanted to to try and get your big reflections on the experience in America and what that means in terms of ethics and human rights and how has that moved the agenda. Is it a story of regression? Is it a story of putting a spotlight on problems we've avoided and and raising the hope that perhaps we can begin to address them more effectively. Inequity, obviously, at the very center of everything that happens here and abroad. So why don't you start the conversation by telling us your reflections on the big picture? And we can come around and talk about some other uh, issues that are embedded within that. Thank you so much for being with us. Sure. Well, I I want to thank you, Steve and and Andrew. As you said, we've been close friends for a really long time. I know Andrew's dad really well. Yep. And so it's a real pleasure to be with you. You've been just such a, you know, clear, insightful leader in, you know, the United States and globally. When you first asked me, Steve, I started to reflect back, you know, about how the United States has performed. And so let me just start by stipulating two things before I really go on to show, I think, why and how badly the United States has performed in relation to COVID-19. I'll stipulate first that this is a really wily virus, something I don't think I've seen in more, more than 30 years of public health. It's almost kind of the perfect virus. It's particularly this new Delta variant. It's extraordinarily infectious, you know, nearly as much as chickenpox. We know how much, how infectious that is. Um, and, you know, it, it has a high death rate, but not high enough to kill its hosts. And it surprises us constantly. And if I were to say one thing about the virus, I would say that we need to treat it with humility, that we really don't understand it very well. So I want to stipulate that first, you know, that it's been hard. No country has done extraordinarily well, but obviously many countries have done better than the United States. The second thing I want to stipulate is as much as, you know, Darwinian evolution produced this kind of perfect virus, human ingenuity has been astounding and jaw-dropping, and particularly the development of vaccines, including, you know, a newly implemented technology. I mean, we uh, messenger RNA vaccines uh, research have been going on for a long time. This is the first time we've really deployed it in mass. And so the United States has performed extraordinarily well in the science. But stipulating those two things, that we've done spectacularly in science, and that we are facing a really wily enemy. We have done abysmally since the beginning of the pandemic. Why? First of all, we saw 
this pandemic coming in waves. We saw it in Wuhan. It spread very rapidly to, to Hubei province, through to mainland China, through to East Asia, and then Europe. We watched it on our television, and yet somehow when it arrived here, we seemed unprepared, beginning in you know our major city centers like New York and Los Angeles, San Francisco. At the same time, we bungled everything. We had a test that was readily available from our allies like Germany or the World Health Organization, but CDC developed its own. And privately, I know you and I certainly talked to a lot of state epidemiologists that were saying right from the beginning before it was public that this test was flawed. It was taking too much time. And so we had testing rollouts. Then we had problems with effective and equitable allocation of key strategies, personal protective equipment, ventilation, where there were bidding wars among the states. And then we had a president who you know, truly politicized the pandemic, including spurring um, hatred among Asian Americans and making this into a, you know, a geopolitical conflict between the two superpowers rather than public health measures. That's plagued us ever since. So everything about COVID has nothing to do with scientific, neutral public health principles. It has everything to do with politics, you know, from masks to, to vaccinations to lockdowns. You know, we've thrown everything at this. We've tried masking, but we've been so sporadic that that didn't really work because it, the virus kept raging back. We've tried even lockdowns and lockdowns then seemed to suppress the virus, but then it came raging back. The reason for that is, is that we locked down, but we had no plans for what we were going to do when we, when we reopened. We didn't have clear ways of testing and tracing, isolation, quarantine. We didn't have universal masking with mandates, ventilation. Our public health messaging has been appalling. Um, CDC, even just you know, within the last several months, has had three different communications on masking, all different. CDC, as oh, I've always thought of them as the shining star of the federal agencies, They're the envy of the world. They have done fairly well on the science, but it's really surprising how so much of our knowledge has come from Israel, the United Kingdom, and other countries, even Indonesia, and not from the CDC. We're not even tracking breakthrough infections that are not as serious and require hospitalization. We were behind on genomic sequencing. Steve, I could go on and on and on, but I think you get the idea that for some reason, although we should have been prepared and we were ranked by the Global Health Security Index that you and I are involved in as the number one in preparation, we just didn't perform well. And even with the vaccines, we've been seeing that politicized. We hit a plateau. And now we're, you know, scrambling with boosters and vaccination mandates. And it just seems a little bit messy and uncoordinated. Thanks, Larry, for that very, very eloquent and powerful opening overview. Over to Andrew. Thanks, Stephen. So great to be back. Larry, it's such a pleasure to be here. And thanks for the shout out for my father. Dr. Joseph E. Schwartz, you know, sometimes I get emails addressed to me that say Dr. Schwartz, and I say, I'm not the PhD in the family, as my dad and my mom were. So, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm just the guy well with the master's degree. <laughs> right, exactly. I still have time, though, right? I still have time. You just said something that's really interesting to me. We're not tracing 
breakthrough infections if they're not that serious. Why is that? Why are we not doing that? You know, I mean, I wish I could find an explanation. I mean, I, I, I have found that it was quite to my surprise that CDC just hasn't been doing well with its epidemiology. There are some fundamental structural reasons for that. But beyond that, it just might be, you know, poor planning and policy. The structural reasons, of course, is, is that, you know, we are so devolved in our federalist country that most of, you know, public health takes place at the state and local level. And so, you know, the states, the localities, the tribes, they're the ones that, that feed the information into CDC. And it hasn't been seamless so to give you another example, Andrew, we're pretty much the only country I can think of among our peers that doesn't have a national immunization registry. Right. You know, we don't know nationally who's been vaccinated, when, and with what vaccine. And in many other countries, you know, all of them with, you know, with some kind of a national health service, they're able to do that. Even early on, you know, my my whole family's from the UK. My wife's from, from the Lake District and my family's there. Most of my friends there lived there for, for nearly 20 years. You know, their doctors just call them up and they say, it's time for you to come in for your vaccine. Right. And if you don't, you can't come in, the, the GP will come to you. It's, you know, we just, we're suffering from poor politics, poor policy, and really a public health infrastructure that's been allowed to weaken beyond that which it should. We spent so much money on our health care and medical system and so little on our public health infrastructure. Well, I know a topic that Steve and I want to get into with you is the polarization of this issue. And I've been studying polarization in this country for the past couple of years, and it really boggles the mind that public health has now become polarized can you speak to that? What We're now seeing hardening divisions in America over vaccines and masks. We're seeing people lose their patience with each other, just to put it mildly. And we see a division really growing between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated with all the stigmas and disdain associated. What do you make of all this and, and where are we headed? It seems like we're headed down a dark direction. Yeah, I mean, you and Steve have a really good point here. You have to think of, you know, masks and vaccines, which are the two most polarizing issues, as simply neutral public health tools. There's extraordinary evidence of the effectiveness of both. I realize that particularly with respect to masks that there's been poor messaging and so the public may have not understood that. And we've learned a lot since then, but and I just saw a preprint of a, a huge randomized clinical trial in Indonesia that showed um, both that behavioral interventions can vastly increase mask use with very specific interventions, and also that mask use significantly reduced both transmission of SARS-CoV-2 and symptomatic COVID-19. They work really well. Vaccines work really well. So my point is, Andrew, that these are neutral public health tools. They're neither left nor right, nor Republican nor Democrat, blue or red. They're neutral. And somehow we've made them as partisan. 
And we've actually done it on both sides of the aisle, frankly, you know, because I don't think there's necessarily a moral equivalence to these two things, but I want to point them out. If you start to have animus and blame and shame for people who are not being vaccinated, that these are neutral public health tools. That doesn't help us move forward in the slightest. And I've always been opposed, literally always in public health. And I've, I've debated some of the great ethicists in public health who think we should shame the obese or the smoker or the alcohol or person who's dependent on alcohol. I've never liked that idea. And shaming and blaming a person who is unvaccinated is just simply unhelpful. You know, many people are, you know, a lot spread of bad information. A lot of them are very decent people who need more information. And on the other hand, um, you've got all of this disinformation on social media, senior politicians doing it, including, you know, the governors of big states, important states like Florida and, and Texas, really somehow suggesting that, you know, wearing a mask is, you know, a violation of freedom or getting vaccinated is a violation of freedom. Of course, it's not. It never has been. It's true that people can make any decision they want for their own health and welfare. But these are decisions that are classically other regarding, which means that they, in infectious diseases, your decision not to be masked or vaccinated affects another person's freedom to be safe and secure and feel confident in, you know, in a classroom, in a workspace, or even a grocery store or a restaurant. And so we need to think of these as important public health tools and why we don't just rally together as Americans and embrace them and see the end of this pandemic, at least in the United States, is really baffling to me. It seems to me that we have to somehow tackle this claim that of those that are resistant or, or refusing vaccines, you've got 15 to 20 percent of our population that are likely to be in that state for an indefinite period. And we're seeing a geographic and political fragmentation where this problem's concentrated in different geographies and different communities. And with Delta, we know now that the emphasis upon personal liberty, that kind of libertarian argument collides now with the awareness that with Delta and breakthrough infections and the like, that the coexistence of these two populations of an unvaccinated and vaccinated is a very dangerous and volatile thing. And we need somehow a way of beginning to tackle that contradiction and that threat in a way that does not rely on shame, but relies on something else. Steve, it may be that and I'm not happy about this, but it may be that mandates are our only way out of this. And, you know, if you think about the famous tragedy of the commons, which is the, you know, the class, you know, if you think of tragedy, of the commons in terms of vaccination, you know, we, we've all known that, you know, if you rely on other people getting vaccinated and you don't get vaccinated, that works for a while if everyone else is vaccinated. But as, as long as people are always not being vaccinated, and then you pass a threshold of unvaccinated community, you get a very difficult problem. The point here is, is that from a philosophical point of view and an ethical point of view, actually compulsion has always been the way out of these collective action problems and the tragedy of the common. So I think 
that, you know, we, you've mentioned, Steve, quite rightly, I think, this hardcore of 10 to 20% who don't want to be vaccinated. I think if mandates start to really permeate so that you really need to be vaccinated to go to work, to go to school, to go to university, and eventually maybe even a system like the key to New York City a system where you need a pass to go into a you know, a restaurant or a concert or a movie hall, just like the pass sanitaire in France, that that will, you know, that could get us over the hump. I, I, and, and President Biden, to his enormous credit, has actually mandated it throughout the federal workforce, the military, the National Guard, federal contractors. So that goes deep into the state. One of the things I want to mention, though, Steve, that although I do think Biden has done overall, I used to say spectacularly, but I still, I think he's done really well. But the one area that he's fallen down on, I think, is is that he doggedly refuses to allow vaccine credentialing systems, proof of vaccination systems. So it's all, all scattered around. Even the World Health Organization, as you know, Steve, which who is against vaccine passports, realizes that technical guidance is necessary. They just put it out a short while ago. CDC should be providing technical guidance to businesses, private sector, to cities, states, universities, to have safe, secure, highly confidential, and reliable vaccine credentialing. Other countries are doing it around the world. We're not. It's just another place where it's a conspicuous weakness in the U.S., So, Larry, let me jump in on this. Why not? I mean, the people who are running COVID out of the White House, Jeff Zients and so forth, they're expert in the technology of these type of things and systems. You know, I now have my vaccine card on my Clear app, but of course, that's not credentialed by the United States government or anything like that. No, it's in fact, there, there are only certain states that do it. There are different systems. Uh, yeah. And even, even I put in my through the, the my IR through Washington, D.C. And it took two weeks for them to find it. And I had it at Georgetown University. So that just gives you a sense. <laughs> sure. So, so what, are, what are we doing here? I mean, doesn't if we're going towards mandates, especially in the government, I mean, for goodness sakes, even Louisiana State University really smartly the other day said, you cannot come to an LSU football game unless you're vaccinated. Now, that's one of the best things that I've heard happening in Louisiana on this in a very long time. As you know, I'm a Tulane graduate and we just there's a whole mess down there going on with New Orleans and in the state in terms of COVID, not to mention the hurricane they just suffered. But what what are what are we doing here? Why are we why is the Biden administration slow on this and why can't we get it together? Well, you know, like you and Steve, I've been in very close touch with the Biden administration. And as I have to say they've he's assembled an, an enormously talented group of people. He really Absolutely. Has. I continue to be deeply impressed with them and the thought they give the compassion, the care that they have. Um, so I would, you know, I don't want to criticize them, but I, I've seen a progression in the White House at first, and I don't know how much people realize it. They were really against mandates. You know, they just thought it was the political third rail. They didn't want to touch it. And then, you know, a lot of us were pushing them and something clicked. And I think what clicked is the fact that Delta came and 
the plateau and vaccinations came and the, and, and the hospitals were filling up. And they hit a wall. And they hit a wall. Yeah, that's what I meant by a plateau. But the wall is absolutely a great metaphor, Steve. And so he, then he went all in on vaccines. I don't know, Steve, have you seen a president that's mandated a vaccine as widely as this president has? I mean, throughout the entire federal workforce, contractors, the National Guard, of course, the military, we know. So I think, you know, so he started really moving hard on this. There are a couple of things he still can do. I actually had an op-ed in the Washington Post about the kind of low-hanging fruit that, that President, yeah. President Biden could use. Some of them he, he's already done, but others he hasn't. So, for example, you know, all of our allies and partners have vaccine passports for international flights. We require testing and masking, but not vaccines. It's bewildering why we don't do that just make entry safer. He could also do it on interstate carriers, the way he has with masks, airports, you know, trains, buses, going interstate or international. He's clearly got the power to do that under the Public Health Service Act. CDC could do that. And even with the Supreme Court striking down the eviction moratorium, this is in the sweet spot of CDC. Don't you think that industry, I mean, the travel industry, the airline industry, the hospitality industry, has got to stand up and be much clearer in their views. They absolutely do. I mean, United has moved to full vaccination by October 25th of all of its staff, which is tens of thousands of people. A bold, tough move, not without internal resistance, but it begs the question of what about those people that are getting on the plane as the clients? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I've i always thought that the idea that you could expose others on a, on a flight or something like that is wrong. And that just like we can force you to put on a mask when you go on a flight, we can ask for proof of vaccination. The biggest challenge, of course, it was always equity. And that's why I'm still not in favor of having a total international vaccine passport because so many countries don't have it. But we do. We've got a surplus. Everybody who wants to get a vaccine in the United States can get a vaccine. And so I think you're exactly right. The cruise industry should do it. Residential care homes, hospitals, businesses of all sorts, and certainly the travel and hospitality industry. Uh, I think that would really push us in the place we want to be. And, you know, I think apropos of what you and Andrew said, Steve, about, you know, the kind of blaming and shaming, you know, I'm not, it doesn't make me feel good that you require somebody to have a vaccine. You know, I don't want to make people feel like they're forced or bullied, but this is a public health crisis. We have really safe, really effective vaccines and taking certain actions like going in, in a crowded space um, when you're traveling or on a cruise ship or wherever you might be is so inherently risky to others that I think it's justified for us to ask you to do it or not participate in that event. Can I ask you a question around boosters? You know, the decision's been taken by the administration to move ahead on this. We're seeing the approval of the licensure for Pfizer in process by third week of September. We're seeing, uh, we're expecting Moderna will follow. When the decision was taken, there was disquiet within the scientific community and public health community. And there was quite serious objections raised internationally 
a fear that the horrendous gap in access, affordable and timely access to vaccines in low and lower middle income countries, which is not closing very quickly at all, mm-hmm. that yeah. moving to boosters is going to absorb the capacity of manufacturers yet again in those high wealth countries that are paying premium prices for those for those boosters. So both at home and at a global level, it's been a complicated and difficult decision. And of course, over a million Americans simply took matters into their own hands, went out to their doctor or local pharmacy and and, and got a booster. They didn't wait around for the Biden White House to make policy. Yeah, I'm not sure how lawful that is to do that. But, but a lot of people have, you know, voted with their feet, as they say. Yeah, I mean, I think the White House actually got ahead of its public health agencies on this because, you know, ASIP hasn't still hasn't recommended it, you know, the CDC's advisory committee on on immunization practices, nor has the FDA authorized it. But nonetheless, it is in the cards. You're absolutely right. It's going to happen. And as you say, there are a lot of scientists who support it, um, but the scientific community in the United States is by no means in lockstep with this, even setting aside the international equity issue. They think there's just a lot of unknowns. And I understand that. You know, I I think that the Biden administration and even CDC and its director have been a little overly confident in this. For example, Dr. Walensky, who I think is a breath of fresh air and fantastic, said something recently that that puzzled me. She said, well, it may very well be that, you know, a third dose will be it, that it'll be a three-dose vaccine. Well, that's an evidence-free assertion. We don't know that. We don't know that that how much a third dose will wane in immunity the way this the second dose is, or whether we might need a seasonal shot. And we don't know a lot about breakthrough infections. So there's a lot of knowledge that we need to know, and that goes to our public health messaging. I've always thought that the best public health messaging, which we're not doing well, is tell the public clearly and simply what you know. Tell them what you don't know, and then what you're going to do to try to find out what you don't know. Right now, there's a lot of uncertainty. We're acting like it's certain. You know, I've been saying this for a long time, Larry, and it's like if you're a journalist trying to cover this, and in fact, I think some of our journalist friends have told us this, Steve, Cheryl Stolberg of the New York Times, among others, has said, this is the the story of we don't know. And, you know, there's a lot of people out there who seem to not be able to just to say, this is what we know and this is what we don't know. And it should be very simple like that, very clear to the American public. But if you have even a, a, a statement, an offhanded statement, such as what Dr. Walensky said the other day, that leads to further miscommunication, misinformation, disinformation, and a lot of confusion on the part of the public. I'm one of those that I think that there's a way forward where you don't have to have no boosters or all boosters. <laughs> I think that the evidence is there. It's pretty clear from the Israeli data and other data that the vaccine is waning. We're seeing breakthrough infections. We have reason to worry that the breakthrough infections may be transmitting SARS-CoV-2, even though the duration is probably shorter. We don't have a clear understanding what the transmission risks are and when and how to mitigate them. So I think that there's some justification for it. 
even though uh, we're, the vaccines are holding up relatively well on questions of serious disease and hospitalization. So what I would do if I were Biden, and of course, this is just one, one opinion, is, is that his primary responsibility, of course, is to the United States. Uh, all government leaders do have that. I think he could satisfy that by offering boosters only to the most vulnerable community. We've already done it with immunocompromised. I could, certainly would support vaccinating our health workers and those who have high vulnerability, the very old, serious pre-existing conditions, but I would limit it to the most vulnerable for now. At the same time, I would announce a really bold initiative of increased donations, but more importantly, increased manufacturing capacity, including um, transfer of technology to uh, low and middle income countries who are clamoring for that. I think if Biden were to show his solidarity with uh, low and middle income countries and with the World Health Organization and limit the boosters to those, the most vulnerable populations for now, and then roll it out to wider populations later. I think that would have been a, a good way forward. Unfortunately, because the White House got ahead of the public health, as you said, Steve, you know, it's too late to do it because everybody's getting vaccinated um, with the third dose. And so, you know, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a kind of thoughtful rollout of a policy. Before we run out of time, I do want to ask you two things. The first is, what's the impact of Afghanistan going to be now on the bigger picture for us? I mean, there's no escaping the reality that Afghanistan is a profound moment, and particularly for America, but for the world. And how are you digesting that? from the standpoint of global health in this pandemic. And then the last piece is what we, we ask all of our guests to offer us the insight as to what gives you the greatest optimism and hope at this moment. Because when we look out at 2022, there's a mountain of reasons to be deeply, deeply worried and deeply skeptical. And I, yeah. every day I am getting more skeptical and more worried. And so... We need to push back on some of that. <laughs> yeah, I think I can do. And when Steve and when Steve gets more worried and more skeptical, <laughs> I get more worried, and so on. And it's it's a yeah, well, bad thing all around. Right. <laughs> you know, the two of you are really smart people, so that worries me too. Uh, but, uh, let me let me. Those are both superb questions, Steve. Um, on Afghanistan, Andrew and I were talking a little bit about that before the recording. It is a profound moment for the United States in so many ways. You know, firstly, I think that it actually weakens the Biden presidency in a way that makes me very sad. Uh, I don't want it to be weakened. I want him to succeed, and he has been succeeding. And I, he's a real, I know him from my work in, in the cancer world. He's, he's a really good person. And the most important thing is he surrounded himself with brilliant people, diplomats, scientists, you name it. So. I think that's the first problem is, is that it's weakened the presidency and that, and we need that. We need a strong presidency um, to fight COVID. But beyond weakening the presidency itself, it's also diverting even a weakened president from the coronavirus pandemic. So it's all, all eyes, all minds are now on Afghanistan. 
that's what's capturing the public. I think we've all seen, you know, COVID has even dropped out of the front pages of the media. Um, it's really all about the tragedy unfolding in Afghanistan. And we're also not just weakened domestically as a presidency, we're weakened internationally and among our allies. And I think that's a serious problem for us going forward. And, and it's, it's painful because we have, you know, Afghanistan is, is just heartbreaking. It's happening, unfortunately, at a time when we have existential crises. We've got, we've got to fight, you know, figure out climate change. We don't have time for diversion. We've got to figure out antimicrobial resistance. We have to figure out how to get out of this pandemic. And so let me just end, you know, on you know the note of optimism. I think I can do that, Steve. Actually, you know, a while back I had said, right, you know, fairly at the beginning of the pandemic, and it got a lot of public attention at the time. But for an in interesting reason, you know, basically I said at the time that everybody wants to know when this is going to end. And so I said, and I I couldn't understand how to figure that out. And then I thought, well. That's stupid. Of course we can find out. Let's just go to history. And so I looked up how long pandemics tend to take. They're usually two to three year cycles, generally. You know, some are more, some are less. I said that and I was called, you know, the darkness of doom, you know. And of course, now if it was a two, three year cycle, I would be patted on the back and everybody would applaud. But I think it still stands. I think it does still stand. And but beyond that, we have the scientific tool to get us out of this. You know, we've seen this movie before, Steve. You know, we've eradicated smallpox. We're on the verge of eradicating polio. And these, you know, there were childhood vaccinations and the scourge that measles, mumps, rubella put on us. We're struggling with AIDS, I will say that, because we don't have a vaccine. But we do. We have a lot of good vaccines. And so I think that vaccinations, I do believe that by, and Tony Fauci, who you, we both know really well, Steve is, um, I think he was about right. I think we'll start to see a lot of this lift in spring and summer. Now, the reason you're worried is, is the same reason I'm worried, of course, is that one of the things about this virus is that it just, it tends to wane and then spike. And there doesn't seem to be any reason for it. But I do think that vaccines are going to be the answer. So I think by spring or summer, we're going to start in the United States and other high income countries to really start to see a, a dent in this, particularly with all the mandates and things we've talked about. Globally, it's going to take longer. And of course, we have to worry about new variants, particularly those that evade vaccine um, protection. But I do think that we will eventually, with a very, very slow and horrendously inequitable start, begin to ramp up. I think COVAX, Gavi, European Union and others will start to move forward. The reason the United States has been such a poor global health leader, um, where we've been much better in the past, and, and you've been at the center of this, Steve, is because usually the pain is out there. It's not with us. Here, the pain is with us. And I think once we're able to alleviate the suffering in the United States, we will focus outwardly. And, and as you know, 
Biden is an internationalist. We know him. He is an internationalist. And so I think for the United States, uh, within a half to a full year, we will we will be really coming back to normal. And within two years, globally, that will happen. And it'll happen incrementally. It'll it'll we'll start to see this happen in the US, other high-income countries, followed by middle income and then lower income countries. But we will make progress, we will get through this, and then it'll be endemic and we'll we'll manage it. Thank you, Larry. I want to ask Andrew to do the closer here for us today. Welcome back, Andrew. It's so great to have you back back in the game. So good to be back. So good to be back and couldn't be any more excited to be back with one of our favorite guests of all time. Larry, thank you so much for joining us today and for these particularly insightful and thoughtful comments on, you know, just a really confusing time for a lot of Americans. And I know our podcast audience is really going to benefit from this, you know, really substantive conversation. So thank you so much to you and to my partner, Steve, who I'm so excited to see and uh, be working with again. Thanks, Larry. Thank you, Steve and Andrew. Lovely to be with you. If you enjoyed this interview, pick up a copy of Larry Gostin's new book, Global Health Security, A Blueprint for the Future, which is available now for pre-order anywhere you get your books. Larry Gostin has spent over three decades designing resilient health systems and governance structures that take account of our interconnected world. The COVID-19 pandemic revealed how unprepared the world was for such an event, as even the most sophisticated public health systems failed to cope. In his new book, he takes lessons from our response to COVID-19 and proposes a pragmatic plan urgently needed for the future of global health security. Please check out this fantastic new book. Coronavirus Crisis Update is produced by Liz Bulver and Samantha Chivers. You can find our full catalog of podcasts, including Pandemic Planet and AIDS 2021, on our homepage at csis.org slash podcasts. Thank you.